Well, it's, a, it's an absolute joy to be back. I've been away for the summer, and um, it's been an f- absolutely fantastic time with uh, family, especially um, a time for me to rest and hopefully uh, retool to serve you well. I'll, I'll try. We've got some slots later on in, in the next month or so for me to share more fully what some of the things, some of the areas God was schooling me in and working with me about Um, But we'll deal with those matters then. I'll tell you a bit more about things then. Um, But uh, I am am indebted to our staff and our elders. They did some extra heavy lifting while I was away. And I am deeply, deeply thankful for those men and women and um, the extra burden they bore all summer long because I wasn't around. So thank you all uh, for that. And for those who preached for me, was the preaching not outstanding this summer? I mean, uh, pretty, pretty intimidating, honestly, to come back after that. And, uh, and then they expect me to do it in Portuguese today, too, so, jeez. Um, one thing I did get to do this summer was, or, um, was, was to be you, okay? I got to be where you are. I got to... I got to sit out there and be just as normal as you are. Um, I got to sit where you sit, and I, one of the things I realized is that um, I'm not trained in the practice, the spiritual discipline that you are about to exercise, and that is sitting under the teaching of the Word of God in a congregation on Sunday morning. I don't do it that often. My discipline is to preach. And uh, so I got to sit and, and take in some really fabulous teaching, but I was reminded how hard your job is on Sunday morning. You have a really hard task, um, not just to listen to the sermon. I mean, it's, uh, it's easy to sit and say, that, that was better than Larry. That was, he was definitely better, you know, to kind of rate the preacher Anybody can do that. That was funny. I like that. Or that was really interesting. I never learned that before. But to sit under the word as though it were from God, which we believe it is, okay? and to receive it with that authority, as James says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves, um, you got you guys have a really hard job. I think in some ways your job is harder than mine. Um, and that is what's before us today, to sit under this word. And I think today, perhaps especially, it may be hard for some of you. Um, I, I, I think what I'm going to say today may be almost unbelievable to you. It may be confusing to you. And it may be hard for you. But if you will heed it, if you will listen to it, and if you will let your, your soul and your life be trained by it, um, you are going to thank me for this one day. Uh, when, when that day comes, you will thank me for, for what we're about to do. So um, let's bow and prepare our hearts to receive the word, the word of God this morning. If you'll bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy upon us. Give us ears to hear and a heart to love 
and feet to obey that which you by your word and your humblest of servants are about to bring to us all for our good and for your great glory, the glory of your very name. Help us now um, to hear in that way. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now, I trust you've all seen this uh, logo. I think we have it. I have some tech issues this morning. Yeah, life is good, right? It's everywhere. Company started, uh, I think, in 18, 1989. It's like a $100 million company or something now. It is, it is everywhere. But on many days, this shirt, uh, I think we have a slide of the shirt, is not the shirt that you are inclined to wear. You know, some days you're out driving and you see somebody in one of those Jeeps with the spare tire thing, with the life is good on it, and they obviously, they have surfboards and stuff and they're headed to the beach, and you are obviously not, and you just want to rear end them. You know, you're just thinking, I'll wipe that smile off your spare tire, you know? It's just, you're having one of those days. Um, you feel more like wearing this t-shirt, right? Life is hard. Marshmallows are catching on fire. Um, let me do a little informal survey. How many of you know someone, you personally or you know someone, who has struggled so greatly at some point in their life that they, they weren't sure Following Jesus was worth it anymore. And, and you or them just thought about walking away. Just give me a quick show of hands. If you know somebody or you are that somebody at some point in their life, yeah. You know, the rest of you, you have friends who struggle greatly with lying because this is our struggle. Right? <laughs> life, uh, there's a theology that, that says if you'll follow Jesus it's just wonderful, all the time wonderful. It's, uh, you are the spare tire on the Jeep. You're the, you are the smiley face. And uh, it's not that way. It's, it's not that way for any of us. You know, um, there was a stretch in the life of the church um, that was especially hard for me because I felt like I was failing. I felt like I was, I was failing the church that I loved. And so I had this fantasy. I had this quitting fantasy. And I thought I would be a mailman. Because I thought I could do that. You, you walk up and you open the little door. And you put mail in. And you close the little door. And I thought, I think I could do that. And that, was, that became my quitting fantasy. And I thought, maybe I should just quit and be a mailman. You know, um, hard days stalk us all. Life can be incredibly, incredibly, um, miserably, um, confusingly hard. And I ran across this sobering story. This daughter of missionaries um, who were working in the Congo Republic told this story. She said when she was a little girl, she participated in a day-long rally to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the coming of missionaries to that part of Africa. 
Um, but at the close of a long day of speeches and music, an old, old man stood before the crowd and insisted on speaking. He, soon, he said he soon would die. And if he didn't speak the information that he alone possessed, it would go with him to his grave. And this is what he shared. He said that when the missionaries arrived long ago, his people thought them strange and their message dubious. The tribal leaders decided to test the missionaries by slowly poisoning them to death. He said over a period of months and years, missionary children died one by one in the Congo. Where is God in that kind of stuff? What is he doing? Um, and today, the book of Hebrews speaks to us about about those kind of situations. Um, and it says something stunning, almost unbelievable. Um, and if you'll open to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at it together and, um, and try to grasp and believe it. But what I'd like to do first, since I'm just coming back partly for my sake and partly for yours, is I, wanna, I want you to watch this video that's a review of the main point of the book of Hebrews through at least the first 10 chapters. And it's a super engaging way to put it, so I, I, we watched it earlier, and I hope, hope it'll encourage you again as we watch it now. So. I've got five minutes to convince you of one thing. Altogether, it's 13 letters, three words, and one complete sentence. And I hope you never forget it. In fact, I hope it haunts you. I hope you always remember these 13 letters, these three words, and this one complete sentence. Jesus is better. You say, better than what? I say, better than everything else. He's better than any passing dream you might be chasing after. He's better than any worldly ambition that may have captured your devotion. He's better than anything that could distract you from doing what you were created to do. Jesus is better. He's better than a six-figure salary. He's better than a three-story home. He's better than a trophy wife, a job promotion, and a Caribbean cruise. Jesus is better. He's better than a starting position on the football team. He's better than a lead role in the scholarship and a nomination to homecoming court. Jesus is better. He's better than money, cars, clothes, sex, entertainment, achievement, and popularity. He's better than anything this world can offer you. Jesus is better. He's better than any person that has ever walked this earth. He's wiser than Gandhi and smarter than Einstein. He's more holy than Muhammad and more spiritual than Buddha. He's more eloquent than Shakespeare and more creative than Mozart. He's more powerful than Napoleon and more compassionate than Mother Teresa. Jesus is better. The Bible says he's better than Adam, better than Abraham, better than Moses, David, and Mary. He's better than the angels, better than the demons, better than any prophet, priest, or saint. Jesus is better. And there will be times when it's hard to believe. Times when it doesn't feel like Jesus is better. The world will hate you, your flesh will fight you, and the devil will lie to you. Storms will come. 
You're gonna face disappointment, deception, betrayal, rejection, regret, sickness, and death. You're gonna feel tired, empty, brokenhearted, scared, and alone. But don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. Jesus is better. That's really what the first, at least the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews has been saying, right? We've, we've said it different. We've said Jesus is greater. Um, Jesus is better. He's, he's, he's better than the angels, than the prophets, than Moses, than Joshua, than all of the high priests. Jesus is better. He's greater than all of these. And then along comes chapter 11, right? Some people call that the, the faith hall of fame in the Bible, um, and it's story after story after story of people who suffered greatly and yet still trusted in the prevailing goodness and faithfulness of God. Um, classic little summary from Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, whom the world was not worthy, 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And it says these were commended for their faith. And together then, we roll into our passage, Hebrews chapter 12, and they, are, they make up this great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 1. Or, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this great cloud of witnesses Chapter 11, they are, they are saying to us, Jesus is greater. Look to him. You can trust him even when it's hardest. Don't give in to unbelief. Run your race. Run your race. Matt Papa's lyric that we've been singing over and over these last few weeks, keep running, keep running. Don't look back. Don't you give up now. Don't turn around. You've got to find a way somehow. Keep reaching. Keep fighting. The pain cannot compare to the reward that will be yours, that waits in store for those who just keep running. And so that brings us where we are today. This this great exhortation not to quit. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned that they, that the Hebrews that he's writing to, in the midst of their suffering, and, and God is concerned that we, the believers that he is writing to, in the midst of our suffering, might throw in the towel and walk away. And the writer of Hebrews says it's because we've forgotten something, something essential. And he quotes the book of Proverbs to remind us in verse 5. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation, or you you could say the encouragement, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. See, this... This is the wisdom of God for them in their intense suffering. Don't forget that God is at work in your hardship and suffering. He is disciplining you. He is, that is another way to think about it, he is training you. One writer put it this way, in other words, what adversaries do to you out of sinful hostility, God is doing out of fatherly, loving discipline. And so this this can raise a critical question for us that I'd like to address. Does the discipline of God mean punishment? Are we being punished when we are persecuted or when we're sick or when it's, life is just hard. And uh, pastor and author John Piper answers it beautifully. He says, this book, the book of Hebrews, teaches that Christ died to bear our sins. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ bore the punishment for our sins. As Isaiah 53.5 says, 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Therefore, it would be wrong to think of the pain that happens to us now as God's punishing our sins a second time. As though they get punished once in Christ's suffering and once in our suffering. That view of our suffering would dishonor the suffering of Christ. Instead, we ought to think that the suffering of Christ for us has changed our suffering into something utterly different than ordinary punishment. You tracking with me here? The suffering of Christ for us, he says, has taken the punishment out of suffering. What then is left of discipline if the punishment has been taken out of it? He says the answer is that purifying is left and training and deepening and sobering and refining. That is why we sing this song, right? How, how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God is at work for our good, for our good in our suffering. That's different than punishing us in our suffering. And if that isn't enough that God is at work in our suffering, the writer goes on and he says something that's even more stunning. Look at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he received. Now get your minds around this. That he's saying their suffering and our suffering, your suffering, my suffering, is an expression of the love of God for us. Okay. Can you grasp that? That your suffering, whatever it may be, has wrapped up in it an expression of the love of God for you. So that when John Piper says, what then is left of discipline if the punishment has been taken out of it? He says the answer is that purifying is left and training and deepening and sobering and refining. And to which I would add, and love. The writer of Hebrews says that when the suffering of Christ has removed punishment from our suffering, love is left in our suffering. Okay. Suffering is a sign not of God's punishment for his children, not of his disfavor, but of his love. Not of his inattention to you, but of his careful attention and loving care for you. Okay. And some of you who are suffering might say, well, he has a really fun of way, funny way of showing his love for us. Okay. If suffering and hardship is how God loves us. But as we're about to see, God is, God is treating them and you and me as family. As his very own children. In our verse, it uses the language there of chastising. And while the expression discipline can involve training of all sorts, chastising is a word that's sometimes used of scourging. It's a strong word. It makes me think of that our greatest sufferings are wielded by God for our good. 
the greatest, most painful ones. Your suffering is not meaningless. Listen, listen to God, those of you who are suffering. Okay? It is not meaningless. But it is the love of God pressed into your life. God is filtering hardship into your life as an expression of his transformative love for you. And because that is true, he gives this instruction for you and me. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And I, I like better the other rendering. It uh, renders it as a clear command uh, in another version. It says, endure suffering as discipline. Doesn't specify what kind of suffering. I think it applies to all suffering. We, as followers of Jesus, are to endure suffering as discipline. That is to say, we must receive and endure suffering as an expression of the love of God to us. How can that be? How can our sorrow and pain in the deepest ways how can our frustrations and inconveniences in the smallest ways be the love of God for us? How can that be? And so to help us grasp this, now he turns to our parents as an example. Okay, look, at, look at the rest of verse 7 and following with me. It says, God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, discipline in the form of suffering marks you as God's son or daughter. Now think of it this way. You're, you're over at Lidl, scoping it out, right? And uh, you're walking around and uh, there are a couple of kids, you might call them hellions, running amok in Lidl. What are you going to do about it? Nothing if they're not your kids. <laughs> you might want to, but you don't dare, right? Or if you're a grandparent, you just smile knowingly. That's, that's what we do these days. Um, but if they are yours, and you love them, you will discipline them, right? It is, it is a parental right and responsibility. It's an essential way we love our kids. 
And it's an essential way our Heavenly Father loves us. He says in verse 9, we respect our earthly fathers for their discipline. How much more our Heavenly Father, right? Our parents did what seemed best to them. Not perfectly, not even close. I mean, parents, you ever discipline wrongly? I could do a show of hands because that would just expose the liars again, okay? <laughs> you know, do you, ever, do you ever have wrong motives? Do you ever discipline because you were embarrassed or because you were angry or because you, were, you felt belittled? Your, your pride was driving it? Would you ever um, discipline too harshly? Did you ever discipline too rashly before the facts came out? Did you ever discipline too little too late? Of course. But he says God, in contrast, God disciplines, and the idea seems to be that he always disciplines for our good, always disciplines for our good. In a way that transforms us and though painful later yields amazing results of holiness peace righteousness our suffering is designed by God to bear that fruit um, I hope you I hope we can watch this I, I've got a grandson I've got two and two more on the way um, and my oldest one, his name is Isaiah, he lives in Asheville with my daughter Corey and her husband Billy. And uh, he's a year and a half-ish, and he, he's just in the last month or, or so figured out that walking is superior to crawling. And so, if you can make out this really horribly pixelated little video, these are some of his first steps, okay? If, if we can watch it, hopefully you can hear the... Yes! Yes! Back a little bit, away. Yeah. Walk to mama. Ready? Come here, Isaiah. <gasps> Come here, Bubba. Go to mama. Go to mama. Good job. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. <laughs> Good job. All right. So. So the little guy's learning how to walk, right? Like Frankenstein. Um, I don't know if you saw the end of the very end of it. That we've pixelated their faces so that they can't be, can't be incriminated by this. They they let him fall on hardwood floors. <laughs> kind of parents are these? I raised my daughter better than this, right? You think they would have like pillows everywhere or maybe some kind of foam you could just blow all over the house so that he, he doesn't fall on hardwood floors or maybe they could just convince him that he should just keep crawling because it's way safer than walking. Why? What kind of parents do that to their children? Well, parents that love him and want him to grow to be something other than a toddler. Okay? Now, his parents were both collegiate track and field athletes. They did, uh, they did um, high jump and the javelin and sprints and also some, some baseball. So, 
So they don't want him to be a toddler. They're thinking this. They're thinking Wheaties box, right? <laughs> That's what they want for this kid. Um, consider, listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul. His own personal testimony from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Did you catch that line in there? But that, was to, that suffering, that severe affliction near death was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, God disciplines us for our good in a way that transforms us and though painful, later yields amazing results, holiness, peace, righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, trust the process, okay? Trust the process. Take the long view. It's interesting, uh, yesterday we went to Campbell University um, with my youngest son, Josiah, uh, on a kind of a recruiting thing to go in and look at their football stuff and watch them, watch them play last night, the fighting camels. And so we went into their locker room, and on one end, it's this giant poster as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And on the other one is Hebrews 12. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's up on their wall. And they're telling you, trust the process, okay? Come into our weight room. Let us hurt you and trust the process, okay? <laughs> Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Trust that God is at work in you for your good, in your greatest sorrow and suffering, your greatest loss. C.S. Lewis famously says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the writer of Hebrews adds, with that megaphone, God is saying, I love you. I love you. And so... I, leave, I love you too much to leave you like you are. I'm going to make you like my son, and, and it will be painful. Okay. And this is almost unbelievable for us. That when you suffer, you are experiencing the love of God pressed into your life through that very hardship. 
And based on that truth, he turns now in verse uh, 12 and says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Because God is our good Father, and He is training us in our suffering, He says we should make every effort to persevere. Um, every effort to persevere. And what I want you to notice in this, in this uh, these number of kind of metaphors and different ways he tells us to persevere is there's a, there's a corporate aspect to it. There's a together aspect to it. We stand in our suffering because we stand together, not alone. This is something we help each other do. He's, he's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah again here from Isaiah 53. It says, strengthen the weak knees. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And you get that when you hear Isaiah, the Isaiah passage, you, you hear really clearly that that encouragement aspect, that together aspect that we're supposed to bring to those who are suffering that do this for one another kind of angle. Say to those with an anxious heart, he says. This is what we're supposed to do for each other, right? We're to strengthen one another by seeking peace and holiness, helping everyone obtain grace, guarding against a root of bitterness. And uh, We are to do this together, to protect one another, from unbelief in the goodness and the faithfulness of God, from giving up and walking away. And we'll skip down in light of time to the closing two verses we want to look at today. In verses 16 and 17, he gives us a negative example. He says, um, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. And again, we're helping each other, right? He's saying, help each other with this. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though, though he sought it with tears. So, quick summary. He comes in, Esau does, make a long story short, comes in from the fields, he's famished. His conniving brother, uh, Jacob, Uh, works a deal where he trades away his birthright, his inheritance, essentially, as the firstborn, for lunch. For lunch. And God did not take this away from him. He traded it away. And as a result of that, uh, Esau has kind of become the poster boy for really bad deals. Okay? That's kind of his legacy. It's why he's trotted out here in the book of Hebrews. This was a bad Bad deal. He traded blessing for relief. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that's a bad, bad trade. He traded blessing for relief from hunger pangs. And we join Esau 
in that club of fools, of people who make really bad deals when we quit the race and choose relief from hardship over faithfulness to God's ways for us. Esau is a fool. And the writer's saying, don't join him. Keep trusting. Keep running. God is at work. He is lovingly caring for you even by your suffering. Esau gave up a double portion of his father's estate for a, for a can of Campbell's soup. And we're pressed to do that. Our culture markets comfort and pleasure relentlessly as the end goal. That's what we're after, right? The end goal is comfort. I think that old Alka-Sessor jingle could be our culture's motto. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is, right? That's the goal. Get relief. We have entire theologies designed to parrot the message of our culture that say, you know, you wouldn't be suffering if God had his hand on you. No, the book of Hebrews says that suffering in the form of divine discipline is the mark of love from our Father above. Um, A lack of suffering and hardship in our life is the terrifying thing, it says. It should give us pause to think as whether or not we really belong to him at all if he doesn't discipline us. We must help each other choose the riches of faith over temporary relief from hardship and suffering. We need to do that with the help of your brothers and sisters. Don't isolate When we suffer, sometimes we want to just isolate. We pull back. Don't fall into that. The reason this room is full of people other than you is for you. So we can be for you in your suffering. And the reason you're in this room is so you can be for us. Don't isolate. We all struggle. We all need encouragement. We must choose the way of Moses not the way of Esau. You remember Moses in chapter 11 in that faith chapter? It says in in chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let me close just with these words of challenge from, again, from Pastor John Piper. It says, in your pain, you are not being treated as a slave or as an enemy. You are being treated as a loved child of God. The issue is, will you believe this? Will you let the word of God settle the issue for you so that when the suffering comes, you don't turn on God and put him in the dock and prosecute him with accusations? He probably will not tell you why it is your turn or why it is not happening now or why there is this much pain or why it lasts this long. But he has told you what you need to know. It is the love of an all-wise father to a child. Will you trust him?
Come back with me to that situation in the Congo that I told you at first. Where this old man rises to his feet and he insists on speaking. And he says that I will soon die and if I don't speak, information that I alone possess will go with me to my grave. And he says that when the missionaries arrived, his people thought them strange and their message dubious. And the tribal leaders decided to test the missionaries by slowly poisoning them to death. And over a period of months and years... He said, missionary children died one by one. And then the old man said, it was, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we want to live as Christians. And those who died painful, strange deaths never knew why they were dying or what the impact of their lives and deaths would be. But through it all, they didn't leave. They stayed because they trusted Christ. And so this morning, God is at work in you. In your suffering. He is bringing to you holiness and peace and righteousness. It is his expression of love for you. Will you trust him? And so what we'd like to do is... Um, close. The worship team is going to come and lead us in closing song. And if you are suffering, if you're at a place in suffering of hardship, it might be a small thing, a nagging thing. It might be a crushing thing. We'd just like to invite you to make your way down during the first verse of the song. And uh, we want to pray for you. The church wants to pray for you. And uh, church, let me encourage you, don't let anybody come alone. Okay? If you see a friend down here, come with them. If you see somebody that's down here by themselves, come stand near them and place your hand on them and, and pray for them as we pray for them as a congregation. So if you'll stand, let's sing this song of faith together, of trusting God and his kindness. And uh, as we begin to sing, if you'll make your way down here, if you're in a hard place and want prayer and would welcome that today, and we'll pause partway in the song and, and pray for you.